Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. It's morning in America. It's Monitor Monday. For rural hospitals and small town clinics, big city health systems, and healthcare professionals, Monday means Monitor Monday. And Monday means gearing up for another week of audits by the government and health plans. Here now with the latest regulatory and audit news is the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Monitor Monday. Last week, a Massachusetts judge ordered the public disclosure of details of the Purdue Pharma lawsuit. That lawsuit accuses makers of OxyContin of deceiving both patients and doctors about the risk of opioids. Nationally recognized whistleblower attorney Mary Inman is standing by to report that developing story. Also on today's Monitor Monday, you'll hear how a major health system handles demands by payers to respond within three hours or have their claims denied. Senior Director of Case Management Val Krauss reports that story. Rack Monitor investigative reporter in New York, Attorney Ed Roach, reports on a new trend in self-audits. Healthcare Attorney David Glazer returns to Monitor Monday with another example of the risk business. And Nancy Beckley has all the latest topics and the Monitor Monday listeners survey. But we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who's making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1RCM. Here now making his Monday rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Good morning, all. As you heard later in the broadcast, Mary Inman is going to talk about the accusations surrounding the Sackler family who owned Purdue Pharmaceuticals, the company that developed OxyContin and started the cascade of events that led to our current opioid crisis. This is a crisis that affects all parts of society, but since many of our listeners are hospital-based, I thought I'd share some perspective from my six years as a physician advisor in a suburban hospital. And let me start by saying my view is tainted. I did not get called to see all the compliant patients with chronic pain who kept their appointments and never dropped any pills down the sink. I got called when a nurse or doctor had suspicion and wanted me to investigate and perhaps intervene. No child ever grew up with a dream of becoming addicted to drugs, but it happens. Sometimes after that first dose of an opioid given after a tooth extraction, sprained ankle, or taken from grandma's medicine cabinets. Likewise, no one went into medicine to supply non-medically necessary addictive medications to addicts, and there's nothing less rewarding for a nurse than having to administer an intravenous dose of a potent opioid to someone who does not have real pain, but instead has an addiction. Now, the opioid abuser community is actually a tight-knit group. When one abuser finds a doctor who's more liberal with prescriptions for opioids, the word gets out fast. We even had people call the ED to find out if that doctor was on duty. Now, we all know pain is subjective, and the abusers knew the right descriptions to provide and the right allergies to have to ensure they got their drug of choice. Carl was one patient with opioid abuse disorder who frequented our emergency department with severe abdominal pain. And almost every time he came into the ED, he got a CAT scan. To try and minimize his radiation exposure, I called all the local hospitals to see if he had any scans there and found that in two years, he had over 55 CAT scans at the five area hospitals. That's a lot of radiation for a 27-year-old. And then there was Hannah. She was on dialysis and had chronic pain. When she skipped her dialysis, she got admitted and her primary care physician always ordered IV dilated for her. And as you can guess, She started skipping dialysis in order to get admitted 
and get her IV dilated. The result, she ended up with endocarditis and died during valve replacement surgery. I had no issues talking to possible opioid abusers in the hospital. I offered them referrals for care and community resources, but I also made sure my nurses and doctors did not feel that they had to be the ones to broach that subject of addiction. And if I caught patients falsifying information, like false names, false addresses, they had a choice to either stay with no opioids, leave, or let me call the police. Now, I have an article coming out Thursday on what CGS is trying to do to minimize um, inappropriate opioid prescribing. This crisis was not created by us, but we are left to fix it. Thank you, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1RCM, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Here now with the latest hot topics and the Monitor Monday listener survey is Monitor Monday Senior Correspondent Nancy Beckley. Good morning, Nancy. Good morning, Chuck, and I have a great update this morning. CMS issued a MedLearn Matters article last week, MedLearn Matters number MM11120, entitled Updates to Reflect Removal of Functional Reporting Requirements and therapy provisions of the Bipartisan Budget Act of 2018. Now, I've already reported on this story, but what this memorandum is doing is indicating that CMS has updated the relevant provider manuals, which is great because very often CMS does take a bit of time to get around to updating the manuals, so often providers are working with the wrong menu. This Update CR 11120 updates Chapter 12 and Chapter 15 of the Medicare Benefit Policy Manual. Chapter 12 is regarding benefits under comprehensive outpatient rehabilitation facilities or CORFs, and Chapter 15 is about covered medical and other health services. Section 220 to 230 is the relevant section for PT, OT, and speech. As far as the claims processing manual is concerned, the update is to Chapter 5, and that is Part B, Outpatient Rehabilitation and CORF OPT Services, OPT standing for Rehab Agency Services. So pick up the relevant transmittals, 4214 to the claims processing manual and transmittal 255 to the Medicare Benefits Policy Manual and ensure that all the guidance for outpatient therapy at your practice is up to date. And now for our poll, and I want to thank Dr. Hirsch for the genesis and the idea for this poll. Check one, if you law enforcement and federal agencies should target high prescribers of opioids for investigations. Check number two, if you think opioids should be restricted to those with cancer or life-threatening diseases only. Check number three, if you think physical therapy must be prescribed with any opioid therapy for chronic pain. And check number four, if you feel Medicare should consider coverage of alternative therapies such as acupuncture, yoga, and medical marijuana in the fight against opioid epidemics. And the little wink-wink between Dr. Hirsch and I is adding the physical therapy. So Chuck will be back a little bit later in the program with the results of this incredibly interesting poll. Thanks, Nancy, very much. That was Monitor Monday's senior correspondent, Nancy Beckley. Nancy is the president and CEO for Nancy Beckley and Associates. And coming up in about 10 minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from David Glazer, Mary Inman calling in live from London, Ed Roach, and our special guest, Val Krause. This is Monday, it's February 4th. It is day four of Black History Month, and you're listening to Monitor Monday, stand by. 
Here's important information about hospital discharge planning and CMS. Listen closely. The Hospital Readmission Reduction Program penalizes hospitals for excessive readmissions that are often the result of poor discharge process and medical decision-making. In fact, your hospital could forfeit millions of dollars for failure to comply with policy changes about the Medicare Hospital Readmission Reduction Program that penalizes hospitals for excessive readmissions. During an exclusive RAC Monitor webcast, Marvin Mitchell and Dr. Ronald Hirsch will discuss expected changes to the CMS program that could impact your hospital's compliance, reimbursement, and future participation in Medicare and Medicaid. Attend the webcast, Discharge Planning, Why Your Hospital Could Forfeit Millions to Fed. It's Thursday, this Thursday, February 7th, at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. To register, click on the handout tab in today's Monitor Monday. Thanks, Lick Anthony. And remember, you can save $40 when you register for this webcast. Simply enter the coupon code MONDAY. And speaking of Rack Monitor webcasts, now you and your team can benefit from more than 50 compliance webcasts when you subscribe to the 2019 Rack Monitor webcast series. And now for the Monitor Money Risky Business segment, here is healthcare attorney David Glazer. Good morning, David. David, what is risky this morning? Good morning, Mr. Buck. So during our first broadcast of the year, there was some discussion about whether Medicare Advantage plans are required to follow the two-midnight rule. Now, I don't think this should be controversial. They are. First, under the law, plans are required to provide the patients with benefits that are at least as generous uh, as under the traditional Medicare program. Now, if that were the only factor, there would be ambiguity. Uh, It would mean that the patient can't be worse off than if the plan used the two-midnight rule. But perhaps in some situations, the patient would be better off as an outpatient. But that isn't the only provision. There's more. There's a requirement that MA plans follow the Medicare manuals. The bottom line is that if traditional Medicare would consider a patient an inpatient, Medicare Advantage plans must also consider the patient an inpatient. So let's look at the law. First, there's a statutory requirement that Medicare Advantage plans offers beneficiaries benefits that are at least as generous as those in traditional Medicare. My source for this is Social Security Act Section 1852, and it says that plans must offer benefits, which it defines as, and this is going to get sloggy, but bear with me, those items and services other than hospice care or coverage for organ acquisition for kidney transplants, uh, including, as covered under sections, and we'll skip the statutory sites here, um, with cost sharing for those services as required under Parts A and B, or, subject to Clause 3, an actuarial equivalent level of cost sharing as determined in this part. So that's a slog, but basically in plain English, they're saying patients can't be required to pay more than they would under traditional Medicare. Now, a patient pays a 20% copayment for outpatient under traditional Medicare, but has no copayment for the first 60 days of a hospital stay. So it's clearly more expensive for the patient if they're considered an outpatient. Now, I suppose a Medicare Advantage plan could change its benefit set to eliminate the copayment, um, and that's, if, if that's all there were, I guess that'd be a question. But this is where the regulation comes into play. And that regulation is 42 CFR 422.101. And it requires Medicare Advantage plans to comply with CMS's national coverage determinations 
and also with general coverage guidelines included in the original Medicare manuals and instructions, unless they're superseded by regulation um, or related instructions. And it would seem to me that the two midnight rule falls squarely into that. So this should leave no doubt that Medicare Advantage plans have to follow the two midnight rule. Now, if someone's aware of something that contradicts that analysis, I'm all ears, or if you use the question box or email here, eyes. So, Chuck, watching the Super Bowl last night sort of seemed like spending two midnights on a train in Georgia, but that's not my song. When it comes to Medicare Advantage, I hope I'm not just another talking head, and that my appearance here isn't just once in a lifetime. But it's clear that when you're talking about benefits offered by a Medicare Advantage plan, they have to be the same as they ever was. Same as it ever was. Same as it ever was. Same as it ever was. Same Back to you. Thanks, David, very much. I was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder of the law firm of Frederickson Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Rack Modern investigator, reporter, and New York attorney Ed Roach reports on a new trend in self-audits. Good morning, Ed. Hi, Chuck. We have lived for years under the sword of Damocles, the continuing waves of audits. The names of the organizations have changed, but the sloppy, inaccurate, and more than 60% faulty audits have continued. Year after year, more healthcare providers either raise their prices or cut back their services in order to pay for more legal and administrative expenses. It's a trade-off. Now, I have good news for you. Medicare audits and statistical extrapolations by these entities may become a thing of the past. Chuck, do you remember the Soviet Union, Stalin, the secret police? Its head, Lavrenti Beria, once said, find me the man and I'll show you the crime. These days, for-profit Medicare auditors act as Wild West bounty hunters for the government. For them, it is, show me a provider and I'll find the overpayments. Our auditors use massive data mining techniques to find the crimes, so to speak. Then they take the money. If the provider wants its money back, they have to fight City Hall. Bounty hunters work in three steps. Target, audit, extract. Find and target the provider, conduct an audit, then extract the money and collect the bounty. Now we are seeing more of something different. What if the bounty hunters could skip a step? What if they would need only to target, then go straight to extraction, skipping the audit step altogether? That seems to be a trend. How does it work? This new pattern sees the targeting followed by a demand letter. The provider then is expected to do a self-audit within 60 days, then send in a check for what is due. The cost of a self-audit is shifted to the provider. They must hire the coding experts and statisticians. And the demand letters strike fear into the heart because they threaten KETAM level damages. What are those? Well, first take the overpayment amount, multiply it by three, Let's call that number the base amount. Then count the number of denied claims and multiply that by between around $11,000 to $22,000 per claim. And add that number to the base amount. It's a big number. 
lots of cash, easy to calculate, hard to pay. Well, avoiding that type of penalty certainly is an incentive to audit yourself, ASAP. Then there's the question of leakage. Humans being humans, we wonder how many people collecting on KTAM settlements have been tipped off secretly by someone on the inside of an auditor. Well, there's really no way of knowing, is there? But with so much money involved and the type of society we live in, it is worth considering. In any case, I doubt a crime would have been committed. After all, would it be a crime to leak information that helps the government rightfully recover a pile of cash? If the leaker takes a commission under the table, uh, who's really watching? So now we have come full circle. There is no need to invest the time auditing a provider. One needs only to scare them into auditing themselves and paying for the audit themselves and sending in the money themselves. Target, then extract. Great work if you can get it. Now that's efficiency for you. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Ed, very much. That was Rack Monitor Investigative Reporter and New York Attorney Ed Roach. Ed is the Director of Scientific Intelligence for Barraclue, New York, LLC. Last week, a Massachusetts judge ordered the public disclosure of details contained in the Purdue Pharma lawsuit. That lawsuit accuses the makers of Oxycontin of deceiving patients and doctors about the risk of opioids. Nationally recognized whistleblower attorney Mary Inman is here to report on that developing story. Good morning, Chuck. Massachusetts is one of 36 states suing Purdue Pharma, maker of the addictive opioid pain medication Oxycontin, for deceiving doctors and patients in the sale of Oxycontin. The Massachusetts lawsuit is unique in that it is the first to sue not only Purdue Pharma, which is owned by the Sackler family, but also eight members of the Sackler family themselves who served on the Purdue board or as company executives, including former Purdue president Richard Sackler. The case made news late last week when Massachusetts Superior Court Judge Janet Sanders granted a motion filed by a consortium of major news outlets, including Reuters, the Boston Globe, and the New York Times, to reveal large portions of the 274-page amended complaint that had previously been heavily redacted. Judge Sanders rejected Purdue's argument that she should wait to see how a special master in charge of discovery handled similar arguments being made in federal court in Ohio, where a multi-district litigation against Purdue on behalf of several other states is playing out. The newly released portions of the Massachusetts Attorney General's complaint contain many explosive allegations highlighting the degree to which the Sackler family defendants allegedly micromanaged the Purdue business as well as the family's rapacious greed and disregard for patient welfare. The following are some of the most notable allegations. According to the complaint, in 2009, Purdue hired McKinsey to help shape its message for selling OxyContin and overcoming rising concerns about addiction and overdoses. Among the McKinsey recommendations Purdue allegedly adopted was an intense push in 2013 to have its sales representatives increase their sale visits to high-prescribing doctors. McKinsey recommended that targeting the most frequent prescribers could boost OxyContin sales by hundreds of millions of dollars. As quotas rose, the complaint alleges, so did the total visits. 
Quoting from the complaint, Purdue deceived Massachusetts doctors and patients to get more patients on OxyContin, misled them to use higher and more dangerous doses, and deceived them to stay on the drugs for longer and more harmful periods of time. All the while, Purdue peddled falsehoods to keep patients away from safer alternatives. Even when Purdue knew people in Massachusetts were addicted and dying, Purdue treated doctors and their patients as targets to sell more drugs. According to the Massachusetts complaint, Purdue failed to act on information it had about doctors suspected of falsely abusing or illegally prescribing OxyContin. In 2012, the complaint alleges Purdue rejected one of its employees' requests Purdue's head of sales that it should notify health insurers about this list of suspicious doctors, codenamed Project Zero. Both the Massachusetts lawsuit and multi-district litigation in federal court in Ohio are being played out against a backdrop in which in 2007, Purdue pled guilty to a felony and agreed to stop misrepresenting OxyContin's addictive properties. And two of its executives, former CEO Michael Friedman and former legal counsel Howard Yadell, pleaded guilty to a misdemeanor for misbranding OxyContin. In her complaint, Massachusetts Attorney General Maura Healy notes that no Sackler family members pleaded guilty in 2007 and suggests instead Purdue paid Udell $6 million between 2008 and 9 and paid Friedman $3 million in 2008 as a way of buying their loyalty and silence. The Massachusetts case is in its early stages. Purdue has filed a motion challenging Massachusetts as an appropriate jurisdiction for this action, which has yet to be heard. We will continue to monitor the cases against Purdue in both Massachusetts and Ohio as they develop. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Mary, very much. That was nationally recognized whistleblower attorney Mary Inman. Mary was calling in from London. Are you experiencing an increasing number of calls from payers demanding that you have two to three hours to send clinical documentation or else have your claims denied? Are you being told you can't have a peer-to-peer because your request was considered too late? Well, learn how one major Midwest health system responds to these demands. Is Val Krause. Good morning, Val. Good morning, Chuck. A few months ago, like many of you, my colleagues and I started receiving reports of Humana and other Medicare Advantage payers refusing to allow a peer-to-peer after an initial denial while a patient was still in-house and giving a mere two hours at other cases to provide additional clinical or face denials. We quickly reached out to our contacts at the payers, both at the regional and corporate levels. We were told this was a mandate from CMS, though we were never able to get documentation of that. So we engaged managed care while we worked to adjust our strategies. And as is typically our case, we took on multiple things at once. First, we pushed on the payers to give us some time to adjust to the changes. One of the major payers actually gave us a two, almost three-month grace period to get things into place so it minimized our risk. In addition, we worked with the payers to make sure that they had the correct phone numbers and fax numbers, which was a huge piece for us because we found that oftentimes the payers were calling the business office, which is not staffed on the weekends. They were calling the uh, patient access staff who don't have access to the clinical. Interestingly, as we were going through this process, it was noted that there were states where 
there were some uh, hospitals that were affected and others not. And in doing some uh, investigation, there were a couple of things that we found at the uh, facilities not having dealing with any of the issues. The first was they actually gave the payer direct access to the medical record after the notification had been completed by patient access. While this worked really well, the problem is that if the documentation wasn't sufficient, it could actually turn into a denial very quickly. The other problem was that if they weren't following up, you could also see a very short time frame to be able to provide additional clinical. What we did find at some of our sites is they were aggressively looking at the payer portals and their fax machines looking for that auth number. And if it didn't come in within 24 hours, they were picking up the phone and calling the payer. This way, they stayed ahead of the game and didn't let the payer procrastinate until the 11th hour. Now, we still clearly have more work to be done, and we continue to to work to pull these processes out to all of our hospitals. While this issue is far from resolved and will require more interventions both internally and externally, I think there's some clear lessons that have come from this experience. The first thing is contracts are absolutely critical. If we had a notification from our contract, even 15 days in advance, that said, hey, there's a change to the provider manual, we could have been much further along in the process and had a a much lower impact. Secondly, we've got to be more collaborative with the payers. While it feels like you're banging your head against the wall, the reality is that we were able to get a two-plus-month delay by collaborating with one of the major payers. And we also have to be more flexible in our processes and not set them into concrete because the payers are changing rules dramatically, and we have to be ready. And the last lesson for me was we have to cut through these silos in our organizations. If it wasn't for patient access staff and business office staff that were part of the team reporting these issues to me, I may still be blissfully ignorant of this issue at this time. In the end, if you're struggling with payer issues such as these, it's not too late to tighten your processes and open the doors of communication both internally and externally. If we aren't proactive, our revenue cycle will suffer greatly. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Val, very much. That was Val Krauss. Val is the Senior Director of Case Management of the Major Midwest Health System. Now's the time for our Monitor Monday listener survey and the Monitor Monday Q&A. Once again, here's Nancy Beckley. Nancy. Uh, hey, Chuck, thanks. And, and while we're pulling up the poll results, I want to make a comment that we, one of our longtime listeners, um, Larry, said that he thought the poll choices were pretty dangerous because many patients with chronic pain like rheumatoid arthritis or refractory migraine might be left to suffer. So let's get to the poll results here. 21% of our listeners this morning felt that law enforcement and federal agencies should target high prescribers as their first choice. 7% of our listeners thought opioids should be restricted to those with cancer or life-threatening diseases. 9% of our listeners thought physical therapy must be prescribed with any opioid therapy for chronic pain. And an overwhelming 62% felt Medicare should consider coverage of alternative therapies. So too bad we can't have a button that says all of the above or some of the above, Chuck, but I think this discussion is going to continue. 
David, let's take a look. A lot of questions coming in. Let's see if we can somehow summarize those in the couple of minutes remaining in this broadcast. You bet, Chuck. And maybe we'll, we'll talk more about this next week. But here in, in a minute is the nutshell. So do Medicare Advantage plans have to follow all Medicare rules? No. They just can't be more restrictive with benefits than, than traditional Medicare. So, for example, if you were to acquire three midnights, that would mean before a person could be an inpatient, you're going to then take that person's SNF benefits and you're, you're hurting them because the person will have a harder time getting a three-night stay. So that's something that they can't do. So they don't have to follow all Medicare rules, but they have to make sure that the benefits that a patient receives are at least as generous as under traditional Medicare. We'll have an article coming out with the citations, but the statutory citation is Section uh, 1852 of the Social Security Act and then 42 CFR 422.101. That's 422.101. So, Chuck, I'll turn it back to you, and maybe we'll cover this some more next week. Thanks very much, David. That's going to be a wrap for us, and I want to thank you very much for being with us today, and a special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Nancy Beckley, David Glazer, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, Mary Inman, Ed Roach, and our special guest, Val Cross, and we thank you for starting off your week with us. And I hope you're going to join me this Thursday for the Marvin Mitchell and Dr. Ronald Hirsch's webcast on proper discharge planning. That webcast is Thursdays, 1.30 p.m. Eastern. And remember, you can save 40 bucks when you register simply by using the coupon code MONDAY. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Thank you very much for being with us. Have a great week, everybody. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.